Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Billy Napier comes to Florida with an extensive offensive background. He'll call the plays for the Gators. What does he like to run? How does he prepare? We'll talk about it right here on Gators Breakdown. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month, get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shout-outs, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to gatorsbreakdown.supportingcast.fm to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore S-E-C. Joining me tonight, co-host Will Miles. You can find him at a site, readandreaction.com. On Twitter at Will Miles, S-E-C, where... Uh, at Reading Reaction, Will gives a big old thank you to former defensive coordinator Todd Grantham there. So, Will, that was a bit of a surprise there. If, somebody, if they haven't read the article out there, go to Reading Reaction and read it. But, uh, Will, quickly before we dive into Billy Napier's offense, well, I guess we'll, we'll hit reverse a little bit. But, uh, you know, you did you did bring it full circle and well, to what we see right now. But uh, what, what, why, why, why the thank you to Todd Grantham? Well, so don't worry if you if you didn't like Todd Grantham as a Gators defensive coordinator, you'll still enjoy reading this article. Um, the point was, so when Grantham got fired, I did something. You and I were sort of going back and forth, and I was talking about how many games Grantham cost Florida, and it, it was something that just got left on the cutting room floor, which is, you know, my my hard drive is just full of stuff that's like half completed ideas and those sorts of things where I didn't have time or just couldn't really put the idea together, and the idea crystallized this past week when Jim Harbaugh signed an extension with Michigan. And it's like, you know, Michigan's in the exact same situation as Florida. You look at their recruiting rankings, their overall roster construction, their roster rankings, and then even Harbaugh's record against elite teams in his time there at Michigan. And it's basically a dead ringer for Dan Mullen. The difference is, is that Michigan had a good year last year and was able to pick off Ohio State, and that gets them into the playoff. And in the SEC, you have a good year and you pick off Michigan, and that means you get – or I'm sorry, you pick off Georgia, and that means you get Alabama in the SEC championship game. But really – it's it's sort of that hamster wheel of 10 and 3, 11 and 2, 9 and 4 that Michigan is going to be on for the next 4 or 5 years and had Florida had a better def- and Harbaugh made a change at defensive coordinator between 2020 and 2021 and the defense improved from 93rd to 17th overall in points per game and that's what led to the playoff berth. Now, 
so then the question is, well, if if Mullen had replaced Grantham between 2020 and 2021, what would have happened? And I think what would have happened is Florida wouldn't have been good enough to beat Georgia and Alabama and their ilk, but they certainly would have been good enough to go 10 and three, nine or 11 and two, somewhere in that range. And so we'd be sort of back in that same hamster wheel of good, but not great. And that's the Auburn of the East is what I had sort of said that Florida was kind of doomed to when they were, uh, when, when Mullen was in charge. So we don't know whether Billy Napier is going to be elite. I think we're going to talk tonight about some of his organizational skills and those sorts of things that make us think he might be. But at least you have the chance. And with Mullen, that was sort of out the window. And so keeping Todd Grantham maybe accelerated the inevitable. And we're going to get to see that play out because we're going to get to watch it at Michigan. And over the next four or five years, see how often they beat Ohio State. I think it's going to be limited. I think Ohio State is most likely going to win, you know, three of the next four, four of the next five. And that's going to be tied to not just Jim Harbaugh's on-field acumen, but it's going to be tied to the fact that Ohio State has a lot better players. And so when you think about where Florida was going to be with the recruiting and all that sort of stuff with Mullen, in some ways it's a blessing that he decided not to get rid of Todd Grantham after 2020 because that sets up Florida to now be in the Napier era and at least see if Napier can be that guy who can turn things around, whereas otherwise we'd be talking about, you know, the 12th-ranked recruiting class, and we'd be talking about <laughs> can we scheme around Kirby Smart now that he won a national championship and and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we always said – repeatedly that this was an experiment, right? That Mullen was trying yep. to win in a way that nobody had won before in the SEC. And, you know, Smart was trying to win in the way everyone has won in the SEC. And I think the answer to that experiment is in, at least preliminarily, and now it's up to Napier to sort of flip the script. Yeah, that was the one, you know, he decided to keep Todd Grantham, got rid of him too late, but ultimately the reason I felt the move needed to be made was because just didn't see any future in it. And now the future's here in Gainesville with Billy Napier and this offense that we'll talk about, Will, and you and I, look, we've we've kind of teased this. We've kind of been going at but you know, recruiting was the big storyline the last few weeks. We've just kind of had to follow the storylines, kind of had to follow the flow of what was going on in Gator Nation right now. But, you know, finally, recruiting not really dying down, but we can kind of shift around it. We dove heavy into the class of 2023 last week. So now we can kind of move forward to more Billy Napier, more of the staff that's coming in. We'll do um, a Patrick Tony next week uh, for, for his defense. So we'll do this Billy Napier's offense this week. We'll do Patrick Tony's defense next week uh, to get us ready for spring ball. We'll go a little bit over the roster uh, to the next uh, few weeks, a couple weeks after that offense and defense. So, Will, with this, we'll go Billy Napier's offense, What, how he prepares. We got some really in-depth on that. Uh, nothing new out there, but a lot of people had sent it to me when Billy Napier was hired. I have found it anyway, but he had this coaching session on, on Coach 2. Uh, it was a couple years ago. And he goes into detail about his offensive coaching philosophy and kind of the organization that he has and how he goes through practice and how they go through scheming up and how they just put together a game plan. Uh, we'll also go into the scheme a bit, too, before we wrap up here and some numbers uh, as well. But so you, you, if you're on Coach Tube, you can go and there's this big, big about 30 minutes little over 30 minute worth of Billy Napier really just explaining his offensive philosophy. And will it starts with this uh, position ID and how they want to identify. He wants everybody to be on the same page. Everybody speaks the same language. Everybody says, Hey, this Mike linebacker, he's going to be called the money. Everybody calls him the money. There's no making up your own language. There's no, whatever you learned in high school or whatever you learned in the previous staff. No, you're, this is, 
our language. So, you know, he says as the game is sped up and evolved, he looks at the offense as a field and boundary game. So after breaking the huddle, he has his offense identified the nickel as the star, um, call him uh, the field outside linebacker. They call the middle, the Mac, the, you know, the, the Mac, uh, the money, the battery linebackers as identified as the money. Uh, if you're right here on YouTube, uh, threw up the graphic here. You can definitely see uh, if it, the offensive formation, defensive formation, positions that they put right here, how they identify each position. So the boundary defensive end slash linebacker hybrid, they call that the jack. The boundary safety is the bandit. Field safety is the free safety. They can make any of the linebackers a mic when they call run plays or using the running back in protection, in a six-man protection. So the offensive line has the four down lineman and the weak side linebacker, while the running back has the middle to strong side linebacker to the four on the weak side. So everyone in this offense uses this language, Will, on the same page for labeling defensive players. In certain situations, they'll make you know the money the mic, or they'll not, they, they can make the boundary linebacker the money. Just however you line up, just however the, the, the linebackers are uh, on, on the field, of course, the hash marks are, are, are important here. But when, in looking at this, I do like that everybody's on the same page. There's no miscommunication. Everybody's ready to go. And he says, no matter what meeting room you're in, no matter what meeting you're in, everybody speaks the same language. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's important. And one of the things he talked about is that having um, having quarterbacks and defenders both pad the opposition. So Belichick's really big on that. Having your players and your coaches essentially, um, you know, write down on a notepad. That's where the word pad comes from. Write down on a notepad what's going on. And the fact that the defense is speaking the same language as the offense. And it's a little bit different because what this means is so you, we're going to talk a lot about the concepts they actually use when they're running the ball and what that means is is that your offensive line can communicate in terms of what it needs to do right because they're all using the same language and they for their blocking scheme can identify the mike linebacker and it's different than just you know and and so where your offense actually keys is tied in with the formation the defense is in so you can make adjustments right when the defense makes an adjustment the offensive line is able to make an adjustment the quarterback's able to make an adjustment they're able to communicate it quickly and so then that allows them to make adjustments off of what the defense is doing and you see that when you look at the film you see that they use a lot of motion to try to get the defense to tell them what they're doing and then once that happens, everybody understands what their responsibilities are, and they all have sort of a common language, but also a common understanding of what needs to be done once the once the ball snapped. Yeah, so one more time, you know, after breaking the huddle, they'll have the offense identify the nickel as the star. They'll call him the field outside linebacker. The middle they call the Mac, and the boundary linebacker is identified as the money. So that's you know the main keys right there uh, coming out and, and finding out where those linebackers are uh, and identifying those. And as you said, Will, then they'll go in motion, identify even more of uh, what the defense wants to show, what the defense wants to give away, uh, and they'll go from there. So, Will, part of this uh, going and looking at it is a lesson plan, a lesson plan from his quarterbacks here. So in the summer, Will, We'll move forward a little bit. They have 18 lesson plans that correlate with 18 optional team activities, quote unquote, optional. Uh, if you want to play, if you want to start, you're, you're taking part in these 18 optional team activities here. Uh, so in one lesson plan, there are six plays that go with a particular install. The quarterback has to detail his read and progressions and adjustments on those plays. 
There are six plays of opponent emphasis. The quarterback watches the defense he's going against this coming in, in the coming up season. The quarterback watches the first half, and then he has those six plays of both the offense and defense that he has to translate and draw up those plays into the team's verbiage. Everything has to be drawn to scale. And in the defensive ID part, there's a coverage of the day and a pressure of the day, and then the ignition reel, which means the players watch the best do it. The highlight reels of like players in the NFL and the top of college football, you know, and Napier says it's all research to base it's all research based to create a visual for the player at an elite level. When they're showing players this, they're showing light plays, light concepts, light fundamentals. Eighteen of these will not only just for the quarterback though. Each player, eighteen lesson plans specific to each position group. So Napier said this has gotten you know his players and they can name a play and the formation to where. Uh, there's anticipation out on the field. His players play faster because they are prepared, even allows for easier in-game adjustments because of all the preparation. Lastly, in the lesson plan, that ignition reel, I thought it was pretty neat, Will. So they go and watch the best at the craft do it, highlight reel of all the NFL players, the college players that do it. They, you know, they mentioned watching Russell Wilson do it, watching Tom Brady do it, watching Drew Brees do it, and watching clips to how those guys do it. But very detailed, Will, when you go back and, and, and look at that presentation about – Look, the, six plays, you have to know the terminology, and you're even going to draw up the opposing offense and what they do versus our defense. It was very, very intricate and all the detail and all the options and all the adjustments. I mean, going back and, and looking at this presentation that he had, these quarterbacks better be smart and they better be prepared. And it looks like they're going to be prepared. I mean, these guys really have a lot on their plate. Well, again, I don't think it's just the quarterbacks, right? I mean, yeah. they they he talked a little bit about what the players' responsibilities are on walkthroughs and those sorts of things, and all the players have to know what they need to do at each of those different times, right? That they sort of the quarterback makes the call, and then inside out, they they voice the responsibilities, then sort of go out, and people have to voice what they're responsible for during the walkthrough, and not just. It's interesting to me that he's not just having them pad their own stat, their own their own playbook, he's having them also pad the opponents. And so they're learning what the opponent is doing in order to try to beat these different defenses. And so to your point, when they need to make adjustments, it's like, hey, this maybe is a concept that I like. This is a concept that makes sense. Let's run this concept. Or you understand why the defense was defending something in a particular way because you understand why the defense would have, would you know, had you done something a little bit differently, had you done something like your opponent, then, hey, they would have, they would have uh, defended it this way. And then the ignition reels, you know, for the offensive line, I think become really important. Mm. So, and, and for the defensive line as well. I mean, you know, one of the things over the last couple of years for Florida's defense has been a lack of uh, a lack of um, getting set at the snap. And that, that is not going to be an acceptable thing for, for Billy Napier's defenses. And it won't be acceptable for the offense to be lackadaisical either, but it's a diff, it's a pro style offensive line scheme. And so um, I, I very much suspect that the 49ers and the Rams factor in heavily to the stuff that those guys are watching and, and being able to see guys in the pros do exactly what you're doing. I mean, to be honest, those ignition reels would be an awesome recruiting tool. Yeah. Like you, have some, you have somebody walk in the door and you go, this is what you're watching. This is what you're going to be doing. Look, it translates. It all goes to Sunday. Um, <laughs> when, you're, when you're done here and you're doing it well here, then you'll go to the next level. 
and they'll teach you to do it. They'll refine it even further. And that to me is a pretty cool selling point. Um, you know, and, and, and a selling point that quite honestly, Dan Mullen couldn't make because his offense was definitely more tailored towards the college game than it was. It, it's not a Sean McVay office offense. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and going to that point, I mean, it's got to really speak to me, you know, going off of just what you just said there, really offensive line. I mean, they've done a really good job, you know, keeping with that group a really good off. They've, they've done a really good job of sending those guys from Louisiana to the league on the offensive line. They're going to send one more in Osiris Torrance, who will be a Louisiana slash Florida guy going to the NFL. You've got the complete running game uh, there as well. I mean, that's just, they've really made a focus on this. So that's a good point. Now you'll be able to start translating. Hey, we sent these guys from Louisiana now, and there's, there will be, they're playing in the league up front on the offensive line. You got Elijah Mitchell there at running back. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we'll get into the percentages and stuff, but, but, you know, a Louisiana offense has really been known as a tough physical offense, run-based offense that has sent players to the league. We'll see how all that, all that translates there, but, um, it'd be, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Billy Napier starts making these, these um, ignition reels and you start putting some Louisiana and Florida players on it. And as you said, even expanded more that recruiting tool. Well, Hey, yeah, here's the best that do it. Here's the best that do it that we coached in college. And we'll, let's put them on the ignition reel coming up. I think that'd be uh, pretty cool. As you said, a recruiting tool that you can even further, further along there. So, well, I think one of the more interesting parts here, and now we move forward to kind of game week and how they get ready for a game. Uh, and there's a specific game plan and practice structure, and it starts with what Billy Napier calls field zones. Uh, and he says, you know, he got this from Todd Graham, uh, but back his Arizona State days. This was something that uh, he grabbed from him uh, uh, along the way, and it breaks up the field um, in different sections here. Um, so you're backed up. You know, that starts from your own one to the three-yard line and what they call the coming out portion. That starts at your own four-yard line to the 24-yard line, you know, backed up. And then what they call the freewheeling area, which is your own 25 all the way to midfield at the 50. And then once you cross the 50, you get to the landmarks area from the 50 to the positive 35, the opponent 35. And then next, the fringe. And we'll get into that. He really details the fringe area. Um, here, that's, that's the 34-yard line to the 21-yard line. And then, of course, the red zone from the 20 to 11. Then what they call the gold zone from the 10-yard line down to the three. Then, of course, goal line at the two-yard line going in. So, Will, he really, really harped on the fringe area. And he brought up, he recalled the game of the century, the 2011 Alabama-LSU game where Bama missed all those field goals, Lost to LSU in the regular season. They did get revenge in the national championship game, but they said they missed five field goals that game. They had five to six negative plays in the fringe area of the field. So from that point on, Nick Saban made that an area uh, field that was tied into a a game plan. The fringe area was something they really, really focused on. Uh, And look, he says, and this was a very interesting part, Well, the fringe area, it changes because of your field goal kicker if you have a lot more – if you have a field goal kicker who's who can accurately kick deeper field goals, then okay, well your fringe area uh, expands a little bit. So um, Napier had an assistant alert him. He has an assistant on the sideline that alerts him once he hits certain areas of the field. The fringe is the the kick line to the twenty yard line. So they're very specific in how they prep for each area. 
Yeah, it, it was really cool to see him go through this. And the thing I really took from this, and I thought it was really interesting, is that there's been a lot of thought that goes into the practice that they put into each area. So one of the things yeah. he said that jumped out to me is he said the goal line is the most overrepped area on the field. And that really resonates with me from the standpoint of maybe, I think it was 2017 that Doug Nussmeyer came into the season saying that was what they were going to work on was the goal line in the red zone. And that's stupid. You don't want to spend a lot of time working down there. You want to have a few plays that you do really, really well. Yeah. And so Napier in this thing, he detailed how many plays he has for each of these areas. And they change it, right? So they have essentially advanced scouts who who – look at their own tendencies, right? And say, hey, in the fringe, we had these calls last week, or we've been having this series of calls the last two or three weeks. We need to go against tendency and change what plays we're going to call in that particular area. Because everybody, you know, anybody who plays Madden has their favorite plays, right? And that's sort of the, <laughs> that's sort of what can happen as well, right? But what he's got is he's got, a, you know, you see the guy over there with the thing that looks like the chef's menu, right? With all the different plays on it. This is what that is, is that he's got, plays that he wants to call for that particular week for each of these areas and then he's divided it up into the areas where it's most critical but also the areas where they tend to have the the highest number of plays and so what that means is is that they're only repping plays for a particular area of the field which means they don't have to rep as many plays during the course of the week because they don't have to have this broad array in each area. He's got maybe three goal line plays. And then you go out to the fringe and, hey, there's like 14 or 15 plays there. And then you go back to when you're backed up, there's only, again, like two or three plays because you're only going to run one or two plays a game where you're backed up from the one to three yard line. At least you hope that's the way it's going to work out. And so <laughs> – um, so I thought that was really interesting because what he's basically doing is he's maximizing his practice time by most efficiently setting the number of reps that they have to do based on each of these areas and what kind of value it brings to the organization. So for him to say the goal line is the most overrepped area on the field, so we're not going to practice it a lot and we're only going to have a few plays we run really well. What that says to me is he recognizes that spending time on repping the goal line over and over and over does not have a rate of return, or at least doesn't have the same rate of return as doing it in other areas. And so that, again, goes back to sort of having all these assistants, the army of assistants, what are they going to do and all that sort of stuff? Well, one of the things they're going to do is they're going to look at tendencies. The other thing they're going to do is help design the plays. They're going to measure what they're getting out of each play in each of these areas. And then the other thing that it does is the quarterback knows if he's in the fringe area and it's third and four, he knows what call's coming in. It's like one yep. of two plays, right? <laughs> and so he knows what's coming. He knows what to expect. And, and even maybe more importantly, let's say it's like third and nine and you're at like the 34. He knows what he needs to do to set them up for an effective fourth down if they decide they need to go for the fringe. So I think a lot of times you'll see players, especially at the college level, they'll try to get all – They'll try to get the first down on third down. When you're in the fringe area, that's an opportunity to go for it on fourth. So like third and 12, if you can gain nine yards, set yourself up a fourth and three, like all of a sudden now you've opened up the options and maybe you go for it on fourth down, whereas you wouldn't if you'd gone for it on first down. And just understanding what's coming, understanding those percentages and all that sort of stuff, while not necessarily the quarterback's job, has to be something that you pick up based on the way Napier described how they, how they set up the play call sheet. Yep, well, so there's look, there's delegation for certain areas of the game plan, kind of expanding uh, what you went on and, and what you went on to explain there. Not everyone works on the same thing. Not everyone works on everything. It's very specific. It's very detailed of what you have to work on 
when you're an assistant here under Billy Napier. So you have a coach, a grad assistant, quality control. They're all involved together in certain areas of the game plan. And an example Napier had, and this probably stays the same since there's some familiarity there already, Will, but like I said, this was a couple years ago, but off offensive coordinator, offensive line coach Rob Sell and his assistants were responsible for short yardage in the goal line areas. Jabbar Jaluk was involved in second and 10 plus and third and two to three to go. Back then, the wide receiver was responsible for uh, what they call P and 10, and that's the possession, starting a possession at first and 10. The first play of a possession, Napier says those are very specific as coordinators have certain tendencies that's in, in that situation that they study. The first play of a possession, they know a defensive coordinator has a certain tendency of how to play that first and 10. So you have somebody specified for that first and 10 and taking over possession. thought that was pretty cool there. Um, the Brooks wide receiver coach and his assistants also responsible for third and fourth and six, third and seven and 10, or third and fourth to six yards, third and seven to 10 yards, and third and 11 plus. So basically the wide receiver coach back then was responsible for most of the third downs uh, there. It gets that specific. The tight end coach was responsible for most field zone areas, the landmark fringe and backed up areas. Assistant offensive line coach was responsible for short yardage, goal line, third down exotics that the offense uh, may see, and a four-minute offense. Also, chances where the offense may find itself to take advantage of a defense using the 13 or 22 personnel. Then support staff will. Support staff gets in on this a few years ago. Ryan O'Hara, who's on this Florida staff now, was responsible for red zone, the gold zone, and if the offense can take advantage of using trick plays. Uh, Ashore Pira, who's also on the Florida staff now, he back then, just a couple years ago, so you would think a lot of these stay the same since these guys have experience in that. Pira was responsible for second and one to two yards and earned first down. So you heard me say P, first down and 10. That's possession, first down and 10, whether Pira is responsible for an earned first down and 10 and an earned first down and 10 after an explosive play or sudden change. So there's a lot going on, a lot that these guys are responsible for. And when Billy Napier said, Will, he wanted to hire an army, this is why he wanted to hire an army, an army for every specific scenario on the field. And this is this army is, you know, they're responsible for all these. So basically a game plan of two groupings for the offense, Will, is what he said. 11 and 20 personnel are grouped together for normal down pressures they may see. And the same goes for the 12 and 21 personnel. 65% of the game, a tight end and three wide receivers are out there is what Billy Napier said. The other is mostly two tight end sets. So when Napier even comes out and says, Will, in this coaching clinic, 65% of the game, tight end and three wide receivers. Mostly Everything else is two tight ends. Yeah, don't don't get surprised with that when that's what happens, right? And <laughs> you're looking at wondering why he's been recruiting these guys, Livingston and, and Hanson there at tight end. I mean, one of the reasons he's bringing in those big tight ends is he wants guys who can also go out and be receivers as well as blockers. Um, the thing I really liked about about what he was saying here when it came to getting all the coaches involved is he gives each coastal a coach a list of questions about the opponent that they have mm -hmm. to then go answer. 
And they don't just get to answer it. They have to go look in the film, find examples and come back and essentially present the answer with the actual film that they've found and then use that to justify the calls that they're going to make at each of these down and distances. And so, again, I go back to the level of detail that's being put into these game plans. And you know, look, we, we never really got this level of insight in terms of what Dan Mullen was doing. It's quite possible that right. this was a that he was doing very very similar things, and that this discipline is not necessarily new. I, I you know I always laugh when people talk about development from the standpoint of, you know, yeah, I mean Florida, you know, Mullen might have been better at developing players, but everybody else is trying to develop them too. So you know, and Napier even said this at the start. He was like, nothing here is a secret. I stole all this from somebody around here. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting is I think there's a tendency for a lot of Saban's disciples. One is I think a lot of them have only been with Saban. And then the other is, is that I think there's a tendency for those guys to leave and not necessarily know how to do anything other than what Saban taught them. So you're trying to be Nick Saban, but you're not Nick Saban. And so you need to pick and choose and find things that work for you and things that don't. So he mentioned multiple times, pulling things from Clemson, pulling things from, uh, pulling things from Arizona state and, you know, pulling things from coaches who he respected and then having that be something that they put in place. So the idea that every coach gets a quest, gets a list of questions from an opponent has to come back with film related or statistical related uh, related examples on why they should do something and what they should do on each down and distance again suggests that Florida's going to be prepared. They might get beat, but they're going to be prepared. Yeah, well, and going to your, you know, bringing about where does he get certain things from? The whole question thing came from Lane Kiffin. He got that from Lane Kiffin as an offensive coordinator at Alabama. So, you know, he's as you said, he's picking and choosing what he likes from each coach uh, to get at uh, there. So, we'll, we'll move forward to, like, a game week. Laying out a game week. Billy Napier did lay out a game week in this um, in this uh, presentation here that he had. So, uh, we'll, we won't go to Saturday yet, so we'll start with Sunday. Sunday is not a day off for the players. Uh, meetings and evening practice. Overall, well, I really like this. Practice is rep-based per block of practice, not necessarily time-based. Some blocks of practice are just a few minutes, some over 10 minutes. Basically, if the work is not done, then the work is not done, and they stay there until the work gets done and it gets done right. If done early, they go to the next period. Napier says that has helped the player's mentality because they know everything has to be right before they move on. The clock doesn't save you. You have to maximize every rep. Now, if you're waiting for that 10-minute horn to go off, well, sorry. That ain't good, that is not, that's not going to get it done. It is rep-based. You're not moving on until that rep is perfected, and then you can move on. And also Sunday is for red zone, gold zone for the next opponent. Uh, he said they go ahead and install this wheel because they install it for the offense because early in the week because opposing defensive coordinators have specific tendencies in the red zone and gold zone. So they, they already know that they've looked ahead. They've scouted that all during the summer and, and all that. So they're able to go ahead and practice against those tendencies because defensive coordinators are just known for those tendencies in the red zone and the gold zone. So at the op at the top of the offensive call sheet, they have a percentage of coverages the defenses uses in certain situations, how much they pressure and how much they blitz. Napier says they don't want to carry too much offense into these situations. Says on average, there's about four to seven plays a game uh, in that situation. To uh, so uh, in the red zone, goal zone. So identify what they're going to call and practice those plays. Get specific about what the opponent is doing on defense and take advantage. 
Will, it goes back to your point, saying the goal line is the most over-practiced area of the football field. Just not, not, not that many plays run in that situation. So main takeaway there, identify what the defense likes to do in those situations. Come up with four to five plays uh, built to take advantage of the defense. And, Will, a big emphasis on four-point plays. And I thought this was interesting, something he said he grabbed from Bill Belichick when they went up to New England for kind of a, uh, a couple-day coaching clinic. Um, it's you know third down inside the kick line, which is you know inside your field goal kicker's kick line. Big emphasis on those plays that he got from Bill Belichick. For the defense, it's important because you force field goals instead of touchdowns in that area. For the offense, you get to stay on the field, score touchdowns in the red zone. Says this area really sticks with him because games – lost settling for field goals and losing those situations in the game. So that's where four points come into play, Will. Four point difference in scoring field goals and touchdowns. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we always talk about that, right? Like you get into a game against a team like Georgia or a team like Alabama, kick a field goal early, and we all sit there and go, ah, you're not going to beat those teams by kicking field goals. And, uh, you know, it turns out we're, we're right. <laughs> we agree with Billy Napier because you know, that's sort of what he was saying is that those plays are the things that change the tide. And, and he's absolutely right that, you know, if, if you just think about it this year, Florida had some opportunities to put some points on the board against Georgia in that game when Georgia was struggling, when Georgia missed a field goal, and, uh, you know, Stetson Bennett threw an interception, and there was an opportunity there. It was still 0-0, and Florida had to settle for field goals on its side rather than cashing in, and then I think made one and missed one. And so, you know, by the time the turnover started coming at the end of the half, everything sort of fell apart. But it could have been – you know, Florida up 10 to three or Florida up 14 to three, if they'd have been able to finish some of those drives, not being able to finish them means that it's, you know, three to three or three to zero or whatever it was when Anthony Richardson had that fumble and a couple interceptions later and everything's over. So, um, you know, it, it turns out that like, I don't, I'm not a huge believer in momentum, but I am a big believer in trying to pick up points where you can. This is why I think I'm confident that Billy Napier is going to go for it a lot on fourth down, especially when you get in that um, when you, when you get in those zones where you're, you know you're back at the kick line. I can't remember what he calls it, but when you get in that zone that's critical there that he talked about, he's going to go for it on fourth down a lot because if you really care about three points versus seven, then one of the ways you get seven is by not giving up and either punting or kicking a field goal on fourth and one, fourth and two. You go for it because you realize that picking up those four points, even in the first quarter, is important. And I think in football, football in general, that's starting to become common knowledge. But you know, it's something you want to see because <laughs> it's one of the things I always make fun of with Kirby Smart is he leaves a lot of points out there, and he can because he has really, really good defenses. But every once in a while, that jumps up and bites you, and uh, it sounds like Napier's not going to let that happen. Uh, so that was Sunday, diagnosing Sunday there, but Monday. That's the day off for the players, Will. So they practice a day after the game. They play on Saturday. They will practice on Sunday. Uh, but Monday is a day off for the players, but, of course, not for the coaches. And, Will, there, here's more even, even more detail for what Billy Napier grabbed from Lane Kiffin, and they assign opponent questions to staff members. So an example of that, from their time at Louisiana, Jabbar Jalut, the running back coach, was responsible for assessing the opponent linebackers. And here was the questions. How did they align? Right and left, field and boundary, strength. Who is the best and worst linebacker? How does motion affect them? How tight did the line of scrimmage do they play? How aggressive in the run game are they? Based on that answer, does the offensive line have to come off combo box quickly? Are there any of the opponent's linebackers a dominant pass rusher? 
with that answer are any mismatch for the running back in protection. So they do this for every position, Will. That was just one detail that he detailed about somebody diagnosing what the opponent's linebackers do. So also on Mondays to break the staff into two or three groups and then diagnose normal down cut-ups Napier would do by himself, and then they'll come together to discuss the ideas. 75 to 85 plays most weeks in such game plan, encompassing all field zones and situations. It's detailed. Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that this is an incredibly detailed plan that he's putting together. And again, I go back to even the recruiting aspect of it. If I was a recruit and, you know, somebody could outline this to me in the way Napier outlined this, I think I'd look there and say, okay, this is a guy who can get me into the league. And then I'm not worried about facilities and I'm not worried about parking and I'm not worried about all that stuff. I'm sitting there going, this is a staff that's going to get me to the league. Sign me up. And, you know, that, that's the thing that I think is most exciting when you look at something like this is that um, somebody with this level of detail where you know you're going to be prepared, where you're going to be taught. That's the other thing. I mean, we talked about padding plays earlier. It's not just that they're going to tell you what to do. It's that you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to essentially define to them why you're making the decisions that you're making. And, and so teaching the guys how to do this means that you're going to be able to pick up more advanced concepts and all that sort of stuff. It'll be interesting to see. You know, at Louisiana, you knew you had four years with most guys, right? You didn't have a lot of guys leaving after three years. And if they were leaving before the four years are up, chances are it's because there was somebody in front of them and they were looking for playing time someplace else. The Will, hope and is, unique, Will, Will, and the unique situation he had because of 2020 was super seniors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the hope is, is that you're not going to have guys who stay for four years in Florida. <laughs> you want them to leave after three, and you want them to have contributed for all three, right? So it's going to be interesting to see whether the level of teaching is as significant at Florida as it was at Louisiana, or whether it needs to be, right? Whether you can just sort of tell some of these guys, use your athletic ability, we're going to teach you enough to where you don't hesitate, and then you know, you'll know you go from there, but we'll let, you, we'll let you use your athletic ability, especially when you're young and you're going out there. I suspect it's going to be a little bit of both, but you know, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with some of these things or with some of these guys um, as Billy Napier gets more talented guys in the on the roster. Well, Tuesday seems to be the most important day, and, and that a lot of programs do. The, you know, their, their, their toughest practice, their most intense practice on Tuesdays, uh, but they practice normal down and distance and short yardage on Tuesdays. In short yardage, it's practicing third and fourth and one, third and two and three yards, third and four to six yards ago. Certain plays for each of those scenarios. For each scenario you've heard so far, they take the, you know, the average time that they were in that scenario per game and base it off of that. They get specific about what they're going to do in those situations. Certain plays for certain situations they carry into the game. Napier says he likes to carry one more than the average than they are in that situation. So we're on a typical Tuesday practice. Napier runs a, and this is music to my ears, a good bit of good on good. Ones versus ones. Two versus twos. At the beginning of practice, a huge emphasis on physicality, toughness, pursuit, as he says, trying to create a mentality in that area. They start with tempo, with the ones versus ones, then they move to special teams, and then where all that mentality really comes into play, team run versus defense. Napier emphasizes good on good, one versus ones, says that's the Alabama model. Sidebar here, Will, this is another area where we talk about where recruiting should pay off. You know, you go, you, you get good on good, and it's with a heightened level of recruiting – you have to go at a high level in practice to get those reps, earn those reps against the best in practice. You know, this happens a lot 
under Napier, as well as, you know, in full team scenarios, the ones versus ones, good on good. It happens in full team scenarios. It happens in seven on seven. Uh, but special teams also will, uh, an emphasis on Tuesday practices. But that one's, one-on-ones, uh, the more you can do that, the better you're recruiting, the better the competition is in practice when you go one one-on-ones. I think that's where you know, it can really benefit. If you recruit at a high level, those one-on-ones in practice are only going to make you better. Yeah, I mean, there were two things that jumped out to me about this section. One was exactly what you said, ones-on-ones, twos versus twos. And in some cases, I think that might even be, be more valuable for the twos, right? Because if you're a guy who's struggling and doesn't doesn't understand why he's not getting playing time, you know, the answer is right there. You're not dominating in twos versus twos. Why am I going to put you in the ones? <laughs> right like <laughs> now if you're dominating twos versus twos i think you can go talk to the coach and say look i think i'm earning reps here and and you can have a you can have an honest conversation about that and, and the problem is if you're always going against scout teams or if it's one versus twos either direction it's hard to determine that it's hard to know where you stand so in some cases i think you, you get clarity from that right whether you're a coach but also if you're a player you get clarity as to why you're not getting the reps or why you are getting the reps right you see the guy next to you get promoted to the ones and you're like okay he was he was kicking butt here on the twos versus twos and so it's worthwhile the other thing is is that he talked about throughout the season and i'm not sure if this was specific to tuesdays but i think it was he talked about changing or at least recommending to coaches that they change from full speed early on to walkthroughs towards the end of the year and sort of intermediate kind of shells in between. And the idea being that sort of the first four games of the season, you're out there, you're trying to establish physicality and you're trying to make sure everybody's sharp. And then the next four games of the year, you're just trying to make sure that everybody's used to the speed. And then the four games or the, and then the next four games for those weeks, you're just trying to make sure everybody's healthy. And I think, you know, I think that's a valuable thing to, to emphasize in the SEC because in the SEC you, you can't have guys who are tired in week 10 because of a Tuesday practice. Like you need those guys ready to go on the weekend. And so again, I think this goes back to he's recognized that while physicality is important, while we want to emphasize that we're going to intentionally dial it back as the season goes along because that's what we need to get the optimum performance out of our players. And that's what really what the ones versus ones and twos versus twos is about too, right? It's we need to get the optimum out of our players, and the best way to get the optimum out of them is having them going against guys who are excellent in practice, and then things slow down, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going up against a five-star defensive end as an offensive tackle in practice – you, know, you you shouldn't have any problem when you're facing Vanderbilt's defensive end, right? It should, it should be an easy mm-hmm. day at that point. And that's the goal, right? Is that you always hear this from coaches. I mean, they, they talk about, you know, making practice hard enough to where the game is the easy part. And that's what he's really talking about here is 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 setting it up to be that way. Uh well, Napier likes to work second and ten and third downs on Wednesday, third down to seven and ten yards and third and eleven plus. Also work on red zone and gold zone. Thursday is more about the field zones, landmarks, 50-yard line, and opponent to the, the, the landmark, the 50-yard line to the opponent, 35, and the fringe area, the 34-yard line to the 21. Very specific practice in those areas. A large chunk of plays, but we're not breaking any news here. Well, of course, a large chunk of plays happen in those areas uh, in games. Also, two-point conversion plays are practiced on Thursday, and two-minute good-on-good is practiced on Thursdays. Uh, one fascinating part of the session was the script to plays portion, Will, and, and opening script, nine plays in each grouping, and he even detailed it. Opening script, 12 personnel, one running back, two tight ends, or 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end, 
said this is a specific plan of what they want to see early in a game. So, you know, the opening script, nine plays per each or each grouping there in 12 personnel and 11 personnel. Um, so, and as soon as com- practice is completed on Thursdays, the players go right into what Napier calls one reel, offense in one room, defense in another. This is basically a 20-play cut-up that is a summary of the opponent. The players make the calls. Each position calls out their assignment. Quarterback goes through his progressions. This is something else Napier said he'd grab from Nick Saban. Yeah, I mean, he he talked about emphasizing walkthroughs, and I think the the situation you just described, where they're going and watching the actual film, has the same effect, right? Where he's trying, he even mentioned that you know these players at this age, their their attention spans about forty five minutes, <laughs> yeah. and so <laughs> if you're like, trying, as soon as practice is over, throw down your helmet and you go into this room. <laughs> so so you know if you're trying to teach people concepts and i think that's really what's going on here right is you you teach them in the classroom you teach them through a walkthrough and then you have them have responsibility to their opponent or to their teammates when they go into those rooms right after practice is over and one you sort of build up the muscle memory where you're you're learning it in different ways but two i mean look i have four kids and my second kid like he is just a visual learner and it takes him forever to learn how to do things if you're trying to teach him on a chalkboard, but you show him how to do it and, and he puts it together and he's very spatial. My daughter is complete opposite. You hand her a book and she'll read it and figure out what she needs to do. You try to show her she's all thumbs. And so I think there's a there there's a recognition at least, or at least the plan that Napier is putting in place feeds into the fact that people learn in different ways. And so having each of those different ways of establishing for everybody to learn, but not just learn to be held accountable. Because if you're in the classroom, something's being drawn up on the board, eh, you might be able to sort of, you know, fake your way through that. But if you're sitting there and everybody on defense has to yell out their assignment based on what the offensive configuration is and the quarterback has to has to go through what he's looking at on a on a on a progression and what he's supposed to do and the wide receiver has to talk about what kind of side adjustment he's making depending upon whether the linebacker blitzes or not and all those sorts of things. You know, that builds some camaraderie, right? Because then you're sitting there at game day and a wide receiver doesn't make the side adjustment. And the quarterback can go over and go, we just talked about that. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> and and there's an accountability that's there that I think is is important. Uh, well, so we'll wrap up the week of practice here and how Billy Napier lays this out. No surprise, Friday's walkthrough day, 15-minute offense versus defense, 15 minutes for game changers, those special teamers. Another 15-minute offense versus defense. After that, it is situational. And he said something very interesting that what he does before the season to help during the season for this, he goes, I'll call Kirby from Georgia. I'll call Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee, Mario at Oregon, and I'll ask them, do you have any scenarios, any new scenarios that you're going to work on on Friday? So before the season, during the summer, you know, checking in with his colleagues uh, there with that extensive background there for us. Basically, you know, top coaches in the country right there that he coached with at Alabama saying he'll call Kirby, he'll call Jeremy Pruitt, he'll call Mario Cristobal and ask them if they have any new scenarios that they'll be working on on Fridays. And I'm sure it's reciprocated and they ask him too about things they can work on uh, together as, you know, to basically, um, you know, pick each other's brain uh, out there. So even on game day, Will, another walkthrough before they get on the bus. Napier says that's a huge benefit to him himself. They'll run about 70 plays in a ballroom with full signals. Napier's calling the plays and runs runs through them, all starting with the situations he likes the most. The opening script last, though, so it's fresh on their mind. Napier says he really likes that as a play caller to really think through it all 
and the players are more prepared. They know what to expect in those certain situations. And there's a week of practice there, Will, leading up to a game on Saturday. God, I love the walkthrough on game day. I mean, the yeah. the the number of screw-ups that occur because you're not paying attention or because you're sort of, you know, half involved and that sort of stuff. If you go through a walkthrough in the hotel and then you screw something up once you get to the game, you know, there's no excuse at that point. And, you know, you think about the Georgia game a few years ago where Florida supposedly didn't have the right plays on their wristbands and those sorts of things. That kind of stuff doesn't happen if you do the walkthrough on game day. So, you know, from the standpoint of everything he's talked about has been about attention to detail. And that last thing saying, hey, we've got a little bit of time before this game. We're going to walk through not just the scripted plays, not just the things we think are keys. We're going to walk through the whole game, essentially. (laughs) 70 plays. We're going to walk through the entire game. And again, this goes to the quarterback walking up the line of scrimmage. He knows when he looks over to the sideline what's coming. I guarantee you Levi Lewis knew exactly what play Napier was going to call and that a big part of the success that they've had on offense is that Lewis and Napier have the ability to to sort of understand what's coming next, get into their get into their sets quickly. I would be really curious to know, and I don't know if anybody has a way to get this stat. I don't have the stat. But I'd be really curious to know how many times Napier had to, and Louisiana had to call timeout because the play clock was running down. And I'm not sure, like, based on this, I wouldn't expect it to happen that often, right? Well, the quickest way I can think of would go to ESPN game by game and go to the game log and see when they use timeouts. (laughs) You you literally wouldn't have to watch watch every game. You just have to go through and quickly read every play and see when the timeouts were used. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, if if somebody wants to take that project on, that's not what I'm going to take on. But but that would be the way to know, right, is to go back and look and see and say – Um, you know, and and then the other thing is, is that the false starts last year, like you get jittery when you get nervous and Mm. you get nervous when you're not prepared, not prepared. And so I think in many ways, the other thing that we'll really be able to see whether this pays off is how Florida plays on the road, right? That when you go on the road, do you have the stupid penalties? Do you have the false starts? Do you have those sorts of things? Because you shouldn't. If you've gone through the process and you've talked about the signals and you're comfortable with what you're doing and you understand your role in the scheme, and it, it very much goes Belichickian back to do your job, right, as opposed to having to worry about the guy next to you. And it's funny, 2017, when Florida got just absolutely blasted by Michigan, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't have a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball when they gave up a bunch of points in the second half. It was that you could clearly tell, especially in the defensive backfield, that they didn't trust each other to hand off guys who were running through zones. And, you know, one guy didn't trust that the other guy was going to do his job. And so he was trying to sort of hedge doing both. And I think one of the things that I hope to see is that, you know, hey, you're going to have some busted plays and those sorts of things. But do you trust that the next time the guy's going to have that? And how can you not when you go through this level of effort throughout the week where you know your coaches have done the work, your coaches have put together a great plan for you coming into the week, you know, you've gone through the the full speed stuff. You've competed against the best guys there are in practice. You've gone through walkthroughs the whole way through. It's not just learning it in the classroom. You go through a walkthrough on game day. You know that the you know that the coach has these play calls for different down and distances. And so at that point, you've kind of set them up to succeed. Sometimes you're going to lose because the other guy on the other side of the ball is better than you are, but it's not going to be because you're unprepared. And I'm hoping that that's one of the things we'll see. Not a lot of false starts, especially early on in the road. Not a lot of wasted timeouts because play calls didn't get in. All right, Will. So with all that, you build a game plan. You go, where will we see on game day? 
Well, you know, you and I have discussed this. Um, a lot of the shot, a lot of shotgun. Will Napier's offense, a lot of it out of the shotgun with some pistol mixed in as well. In that eleven personnel, in that twelve personnel, you know, it's one running back, one tight end, or one running back, two tight ends. That is the base offense uh, there for for Billy Napier. A lot of motion and shifts, giving the quarterback some info, putting defenses in bad spots, uh, establish the run game. Uh, that's no surprise here, but hit those big passing plays out of play action, establish the run. That's the core of it all. That is the base offense there uh, for Billy Napier. Wilson offense, as, as I said, loves motion, loves using motion and shifts and that wide zone, wide zone, wide run, run zone type of plays. And look, this was, I like seeing it. I grew up a huge different Broncos fan growing up watching John Elway late in his career. And what, you know, what, what helped him finally hoist those Super Bowl trophies was, of course, getting a running game. That wide zone shifted to that style of offense that really helped produce in the run game. I'll remember the difference, you know, to Terrell Davis and those running backs after him uh, went on to produce in that kind of same style offense. You know, there's run plays that ask the offensive line to block zones instead of a specific defender. Goals to get that defensive line to move horizontally toward the sideline, create a scene for the running back to go get vertical, get upfield. I like this, Will, because I think Florida has some running backs with some great vision and, and some cutting ability there that, that can kind of maybe take advantage of an, of an offense like this for some for some big plays. In the passing game, you'll see some some flood routes to one side of the field. Uh, this can be, you know, just line. And if you go and look, Will, the passing game, you can see the flood routes on one side of the field, but also it could be the receivers lining up on one side of the formation or the routes will end up flooded, even if receivers on the other side if the quarterback's left, they'll flood to the right side of the field if you know if given time there. Some triangle r- routes there by the receivers making easy reads uh, for the quarterback. Easy to read concepts, Will. You and I to kind of discussed behind the scenes today uh, uh, about that. There's a lot of maybe making this offense a little easier for the players that are going to run this offense. Well, I mean, look, your job is always to make it as easy as you can for the quarterback to make a read. Things are going fast. And so the the better you can teach him the concepts, the better you can get him to see, have stuff in front of him the entire time, the better. Interesting thing I thought is they do a lot of half-field reads where they'll have like one side sort of aimed at defeating zone. They'll have the other side aimed at defeating man. And so if the quarterback can diagnose man or zone before the snap, he knows which direction he's going. And so I wouldn't necessarily get disappointed if you see somebody, if you see a quarterback locking onto one side of the field. I think in many cases that's actually by design, right? That, that he sees man coverage, he looks to his left because that's where they've got the man beaters, beaters called. Sometimes, like you said, they'll call these flood where it's called a flood because you put multiple guys in one area of the field. Yeah. And usually there's like a deep middle and and near concept and so they're just these layers where the quarterback basically looks at the defense and says which one did you not choose to guard and i'm going to throw it to them you can do some other things where you drag guys across the formation so you have a flood and then you drag a guy across yeah and all of a sudden you got a fourth guy coming in but he's sort of in case the linebackers drop into a zone or i'm sorry in case the linebackers are man-to-man you're able to hit that guy coming across the middle so again it, i think it makes it easy for the offense from a from a reading the defense perspective in many ways the other thing is is the wide zone makes it easy for the offensive line right that the 
pulling guards and all those sorts of things. And you'll see some of that with Napier's offense. He's, he doesn't get away from counters and those sorts of things. And he's going to run some inside, inside zone too, where the, where the job of the offensive lineman is not to get horizontal. It's to actually go up the field and start pushing. But, but the wide zone really from the standpoint of you don't need giant guys. You need guys with pretty decent athletic ability. You need guys who, especially if there's a defensive lineman who's not lined up right over them, who's able to sort of hedge and get around and sort of pin the guy. But the beauty is, is if there's an over pursuit and the, and the running back does his job, he can cut back behind him and you can hit something pretty, pretty big from that standpoint. And then the other thing is, is that Anthony Richardson specifically has skills that are going to fit this offense well. And I'm not sure we've seen that with Billy Napier. So you, you look at Lewis, he had, what, 100 carries for like 300 yards this year. It was averaging like three yards a carry. Anthony Richardson averaged nine. So I think they're going to be able to do some things with run-pass option that we haven't necessarily seen that much. I think they're going to be able to incorporate some read option concepts into the wide zone. So you're going to have guys who normally would over-pursue and you're going to end up with cutback lanes because they're held by the fact that the quarterback might hold on <laughs> to the ball. And it's going to be a way to open things up that way. So having somebody who's got special kind of speed, and one of the things that, that we saw last year with Richardson in the first couple of games is he was out running defensive backs. And so you got a guy with that kind of speed, that kind of size, and that threat, you're really going to cause the defense to declare what it's doing before the snap. And that's where the flood comes in. That's where the half-field reads come in. Because if you can get them going single high safety because they got to bring an extra guy up to defend the run, and you can hold the guy in the backside to make sure your runs are successful and you're getting five, six, seven yards of pop, well, now all of a sudden play action comes in. And, and it's interesting because I know people, and we'll probably talk about it, I know people have talked about the percentage that Napier runs, but the the thing I keep looking back to is these the you know Brian Greasy was a pretty good quarterback in that Denver offense. Now Elway made him a Super Bowl contender, but Brian Greasy was a pretty good quarterback in that space. You know Jared Goff was a pretty good quarterback for the Rams, and and then they bring in Matt Stafford, and things get much much better this year. Obviously, so talent matters. At the same time because of the way the concepts are run, it opens up play action for these quarterbacks, and you don't necessarily have to be a genius with the quickest release or the quickest ability to read a defense to find the guy who's open because the scheme has actually kind of designed that for you. I will. So one big part of this, you know, we're talking about staples of the offense. That's why we talk about the the, the, the wide zones you mentioned. Yeah, they'll still run, you know, straight power runs, you know, and, and get the offensive line at the field. But one, another staple of this, to go along with that wide zone is the motion, the shifts that they put in this offense to get defenders out of position. They'll completely change the formation with shifts and motion before the snap. Uh, and a couple of examples will, uh, I saw, you know, a DB, he'll follow the wide receiver across the formation pre-snap from right to left. It's third and eight, a four wide receiver set, the inside wide receiver to the right motions across, taking the DB out of the play on that right side. The run plays blocked well up front. It's a 27-yard touchdown just because, you know, that wide receiver, all he did was motion left. He took the guy out of the play. Run play goes to the right. Blocked well. Third and eight, 27-yard touchdown. Another example, Will, I thought motion leaving a space, there's an RPO call is that a tight end motions right to left. And when he does, the safety drops down to that side of the formation, leaving a gap right in the middle of the field. That he, that safety drops down to where that tight end motion to, that tight end now he's blocking for a screen, 
for a wide, for, for a wide receiver screen or a quarterback keeper. Ball's handed off straight up the middle. That linebacker, he's staring at the screen at the top of the at the top of the formation. So he's taking himself out of the play towards that motion tight end. And that safety that now is at the top of the formation, he ends up chasing the play for a tackle 20 yards down the field because he was out of position because of the motion uh, b- before the snap. So you know, getting players out of position, using motion is nothing new for Florida players. They, they've done that uh, the last couple of years. It's a continuation of using that pre-snap to give the quarterback some more information, get defenders out of position, simplify reads for the quarterback. But it does, you know, it slows down the defense too, Will. When someone new comes in their space, they have to worry about that player now. I mean, there's a lot of benefit to this pre-snap motion. Yeah, I mean, so I think a big part of it is is that Napier can run a bunch of his concepts out of a bunch of different formations. <laughs> and so you can so you can sit there and as a defense, you sort of relax and go, okay, we're not going to get this concept. Then they bring a guy in motion. You're like, oh, crap, here comes this concept. I can, you know, so you can see him running. You know, we mentioned flood concepts already. You can see him running that from multiple configurations, even having guys come across the field to sort of be the, the intermediate guy in those, in those flood or the short guy in those flood concepts. And... So what that means is, is that you have, especially in hurry up, and I think this is one of the things where Florida is really going to be able to take advantage if they want to, you get into like a two minute offense or a four minute offense where the defense can't get off the field and they have to simplify things, but you don't because you can run any concept or multiple concepts out of a bunch of different formations because they just run essentially, you know, 11 personnel for the most part, when they're going to do those sorts of things, you're going to be able to run your entire playbook out of that set. You're going to be able to keep them on the field. And then, and then all of a sudden they think they know it's coming and you put, you know, you're in the same formation. They, you think you know, it's coming as a defense and then they put the guy in motion. You got to figure out what's going on next. That's how you gash somebody, right? You get them to a point where you sort of get them back on their heels. They're getting tired. You've hit them with the same concept two or three times out of a different formation. You come back to that same formation and then run something different. And those are the types of things where you're going to hit. So they're going to, they're going to, the interesting thing is I don't know whether those, um, I don't know whether the wide zone plays are necessarily going to cause like these giant gash plays. A lot of that depends on the offensive lines play, but wham concepts where you have a guy coming back the other direction and it's sort of a counter to the oh, zone. Man, that's, where you was, you were, that's where you was going next. I noticed they would do that with that H back tight end. Absolutely. That, yeah. that H back comes back a lot on sort of these wham concepts. And all of a sudden that defensive end thinks he's finally free. He's finally going to be able to chase this thing down from behind and bam, gets just drilled. And, and so that's really, I think, where we're going to find out whether Napier is truly an elite play caller. He wants to call plays. Obviously, he's the offensive coordinator, so he can have an extra off- an extra offensive line coach. But, you know, Steve Spurrier's gift wasn't just that he had this great offense. It was that he always knew the right time to call a specific play because he sort of knew what the defensive coordinator was thinking and was able to sort of call the counter to what that defensive coordinator was thinking. And so we'll see whether Napier's able to do that. The the concepts are there, but a lot of people have these concepts. The question is, are you going to be able to call the right play at the right time? And do your guys know the offense well enough to be able to call it quickly with tempo and all that sort of stuff to make sure you can take full advantage? Going to your point, one of my favorite sayings, dictate, don't be dictated. And that's 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 what I want to see. Uh, you know, go into your explanation uh, for the offense there a bit too. Uh, but well, one more, Will, before we get into some key stats and then we'll sign off here. You you kind of just brought it up there, using the tight end and tight ends in multiple ways. You've heard us say tonight, you know, it came from Billy Napier as well, run some two tight end sets. 
it's a, it's a staple of the offense. Of course, you're not going to run a, the majority of your offense out of two tight end sets, but we know by now Napier likes to use those two two tight ends. We see it recruiting, uh, but one is a down inline tight end, the other more of a receiver H back threat. Uh, that'll make defenses choose how they how they play this, especially if the run game gets going. Will do you bring in a run stop package, leaving you exposed to the pass now? That even that that Napier can bring in with a twelve personnel. So you know, just because Florida may go big with twelve personnel, that can still leave your defense susceptible to some big plays by the tight ends in the passing game. Florida already has the ability to do this on the roster with multiple styles of tight ends that they have there. But Will, and also just going back to your point, you know, just because it's an H back and just because it might be more of a receiving tight end, don't be surprised if he gets sticks his nose in there as well, coming back from those whams, coming back from those motion type of plays. Uh, that was one play I you know, did see a couple of times that, man, I really like seeing uh, those tight ends get involved. And just because it might be the H back, it might be the, 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 the passing receiving type of tight end, they're going to get involved in that blocking game as well. Again, I, I think if you really want to, if you want to understand Napier's offense, one of the things you can go do is watch the 49ers. A guy like Kyle Jessick, who you know is the fullback for the 49ers, does a lot of stuff. Every once in a while, they give him the ball on sort of a short, you know, and short goal line type things. But he does a lot of the stuff we're talking about. He does a lot of the dirty work to clear things up for those, you know, as as not really the lead blocker, but as the sort of key that the running back is is keying on once he gets the ball. And look, Napier believes in that. He believes that that you. You know, you think about Dan Mullen and you think about the spread offense. The spread offense, the goal is to make the defense guard the entire sec, the entire width of the field, right? And Napier's offense does that, but it does it in a little bit different way, which is you're trying to sort of probe the defense to get them all sort of moving and flowing to the sideline and then um, and then find your way up. And so having the two tight ends there gives you the ability to do that. Now, I do think as he gets more athletic tight ends, like let's say Tony Livingston turns out to be a really, really athletic tight end, I think they're going to be able to do some things off their basic sets in the next year or two where they kind of did the same thing. And I'm not saying Livingston's going to be Pitts, but they would do the same thing with Kyle Pitts. They'd have Kyle Pitts in line in the line of scrimmage. They'd have Michael P. Ryan in line at the line of scrimmage. And then when they saw the, the configuration that they wanted, they would split them both out wide. And the minute they split them both out wide, they knew they had a mismatch. And it was either, you know, and, and, and interestingly, like, you know, you, you never knew which one of those guys was going to go deep and which one of them was going to run the slant <laughs> because they could both, they could both run deep and catch and they could both run the slant. And so I do think that as he gets more physically gifted guys at those positions, he's going to have the opportunity then to uh, to do some more things where it's not necessarily a traditional eleven look or twenty one look where you know you'll start out in that look to get the defensive personnel package that you want in there with the linebackers, and then if you've got a tight end, you can take advantage of it. You know, then all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, you split that guy out and take advantage of it. All right, well, so everything we put together right here, just some key stats there from going back to uh, Billy Napier's time at Louisiana. Uh, they're working backwards. Coming coming in that last year, 2021, 31 points per game for Louisiana, 68 plays per game, that 55%, basically 55% run percentage, 5.41 yards a rush, passing past 44% of the time. Their yards per pass at 6.63 Completion percentage up there at 60% and yards per play there at six. Uh, Will, but kind of interesting aspect here. You know, if you, if you look at this chart, if you're right here um, on YouTube, you get, the, you get the chart here. But interesting 
you know, they're basically the 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 worst yards per play Billy Napier had was his last year <laughs> at, at Louisiana. So maybe somewhat surprising uh, there, but you know, mainly with the, the same quarterback uh, Levi Lewis uh, coming in here. But 2019, Will was the, you know the 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 best under Billy Napier at Louisiana. His second season there, 2019, they averaged 38 points per game, ran 71 plays per game, ran the ball 56.6 percent of the time. Yards per rush at 6.68, basically, you know, 6.7 yards to carry there in 2019. Passed the ball 43% of the time. Um, 7.4 yards of pass as well. 64.9, basically 65% completion percentage and seven yards to play there in 2019. Yeah, it's interesting. That was Lewis's best season, right? He averaged 8.1 yards per attempt, 152.6 QB rating. Went downhill a little bit in 2020 and 2021, though the offensive line was obviously very good because you're averaging, you know, 6.7 yards per rush there in 2019. Even, you know, 5.7 and 5.4 isn't really a slouch. Um, I know there's been a lot of consternation about him running 55, 56% of the time. I think there's a couple of things you need to take into account there. One is that Napier was ahead a lot. (laughs) <laughs> they were 40 and 12 in his four years there at, at Louisiana and a seven, seven is opening year. And that opening year, his defense was ranked 105th in in points per game allowed. And so, you know, that that was probably a situation where he didn't necessarily want to let his defense out on the field very often. <laughs> so you're going to run the ball quite a bit. The other thing is, is I, I think Levi Lewis, while a good player, he was okay, right? He had a career QB rating of 144. That's not spectacular. That's not great, but it's not terrible. Um, you know, but but then you think about it. He's put two offensive Napier's put two offensive linemen in the NFL. Max Mitchell's going to get drafted this year, probably like third or fourth round, and then we expect Osiris Torrance to go to the NFL as well. And so you can't really be upset with Dan Mullen not giving the ball to Damian Pierce when Emory Jones had a QB rating almost identical to Lewis, and then go, you know, well, well. You know, yeah. Napier runs the ball too much. Like, you can't really do that. And then the third thing I'll say to that is that, you know, if you look again, I, I've said Rams and 49ers a bunch, and that, that should give everybody a key as to, as to where the influence comes from here. But if you look at the Rams in 2018, they made the Super Bowl with Jared Goff, Goff and he had a QB rating of 115. In the NFL, QB ratings calculated differently. 100 is good. So he had a QB rating of 115 and averaged 10 yards per attempt on play action concepts. And all other throws, he averaged 7.6 yards per attempt. So from the standpoint of what that zone, that wide zone running game can get you, it gets you those play action opportunities, but it only gets you those play action opportunities if you're committed to doing the wide zone. So some of what that percentage is here is a commitment to that wide zone running and then the play action to hit the big play. And the nice part is, is that I wrote an article about Anthony Richardson a couple of weeks ago about his ability to throw downfield not only his willingness to, but also his effectiveness when he went downfield. And uh, I I think we're going to see some real benefits off of some play-action concepts if Richardson's in there in the game and if Florida's having any sort of success with that wide zone. Yeah. All right, Will, some different kind of numbers looking out right here. Turnovers in in red zone will work backwards here starting in 2021, but – Louisiana, number one this past year in turnovers, only giving away a half a turnover a game. Man, you got to like a team, especially after what we saw this past year, a team that takes care of the ball right here. Uh, but give, give away the ball the less than anybody else in the country this past season did Louisiana. Uh, 
Will some probably points that he can get better. Red zone rank ranked 87th in the country this past season, only scoring 80.36% of the 80.36% of the time in the red zone. But Will, that made me dive just a little bit deeper in that. I'm like, okay, well, what was field goal kicking like? Oof. It was not good for Louisiana this past year either. They ranked 115th in the country in field goal percentage with only 60% of them made. That was the lowest by far in Billy Napier's time at Louisiana. So you can look in, like, you know, I wanted to look at what those red zone numbers. I'm like, okay, well, why did they struggle? You know, were they struggling putting touchdowns on the board? Not necessarily. It was because the field goal kicking was absolutely atrocious in most years there uh, under Billy Napier uh, besides his first year. Uh, but, you know, looking at the turnovers here, Will, ranked 39th in 2020, ranked 17th in 2019, ranked 33rd in 2018 his first season there. So a pretty good job of taking care of the football there, uh, did Billy Napier's teams there. But red zone rank – as I mentioned, in 2021, this past season, ranked 87th in the country. In 2020, they ranked 76th. 2019, they ranked 42nd. 2018, they ranked 30th. And that correlated with the field goal percentage, if you want to look at, if you want to look at it that way. In 2020, I mean, 2021, this past season, as I mentioned, 115th in the country at 60% field goal percentage. In 2020, 80th in the country, 66.67%. In 2019, ranked 80th again, 69.57% of field goals made. But in 2018, when the red zone offense was ranked 30th in the country, scoring 87.8% of the time, their field goal percentage was much higher, 83.33%. That was good for 18th in the country there. So, Will, not great uh, – field goal kick in the last few years in Louisiana. So hopefully that gets uh, fixed here uh, when he makes his way to Gainesville and those red zone numbers go up. I do like seeing those turnover numbers out there. Not a lot of turnovers in Billy Napier's tenure at Louisiana. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about or looking at red zone numbers. I don't think those correlate to scoring all that much, it, as weird as that sounds. It's yeah. more important that you get down there. <laughs> was, I'm glad you brought that up. That was another reason I showed that is because, look, he won a lot of ball games. <laughs> with those terrible red zone and field goal kicking numbers right there. Uh, he also really, won a lot of close ball games. Like my one my one yep. big concern about Napier is he played a yeah. lot of one score games. And those things tend to tend to even out over time. And they never really evened out on him there at Louisiana. So again, I haven't gone back and looked at everything, so I can't tell you why he won all those one score games. But one reason he won a bunch of one-score games in 2021 is his team wasn't turning the ball over. Correct. And the interesting thing is you look at the first year, I think they were 69th in turnover margin. It was a little bit negative there in 2018. Then it got up to 36th, then went to 11th in 2020, and then first in turnover margin. So not only are they yeah. taking care of the ball on the offensive side of the ball, but they're turning over the defense enough that in FBS, against FBS opponents, they're they – you know, they improved every year at taking care of the ball. And so, you know, if you were going to tell me what's more important here, the turnover ranking or the red zone rank, I'd, or really even the field goal rank, I'd tell you that it's absolutely the turnover rank. The one thing I will say is that as much, um, as, much as he's talked about game-changing plays, <laughs> we got to hope Trace Mack is pretty good because, yeah, you know, I know guys in the comments are talking about his kicker getting hurt, but, you know, that's all part of the plan, right? You got to have somebody yeah. back there who can help out and who can do that. Otherwise, you're running fake 
fake field goals against Georgia with the, with a guy who's a dentist, um, you know, and Hey, that works every once in a while, but you don't want to rely on that sort of thing. So, um, like, I, I think, again, this sort of comes back to, um, you know, both roster management and also luck in some capacity when it comes to red zone percent and field goal percent and comes back to his philosophy. Like he's not going to worry too much about converting in the red zone or at least converting once you get down to the one or two yard line. That's not the critical thing. The critical thing is how did you get, how often did you get to the one or two yard line? Cause most of the time you're going to push it in. And that's what we see when we look at the stats is that you know, yards per play is a much better predictor of scoring than red zone rank or even you know red zone touchdown percentage um, just because it turns out that an 80-yard touchdown pass is worth an awful lot, and if it takes you 15 plays to get down there and it stalls out in the red zone, eh, that was still worth something. But uh, you know that one play seems to be the one that tends to drive the scoring for most, most college football teams. Yeah, it's one reason I put those numbers up. You know, while you would like to see them better, not necessarily correlating – to to the to the win loss record there as you said will i think the turnover margin was definitely huge especially this past year your past couple of years uh patrick tony takes over there on defense we'll talk about him next week so i'll bring up these turnover numbers again and mostly it will be about you know turnover margin and how it helps those uh how it helped those raging cajuns the last couple of years there uh and what florida will be getting well, you and I, it's, it's kind of funny. You and I have actually talked more about Patrick Tony's defense behind the scenes, more so than we have Billy Napier's offense. So we, and then we had the conversation about a month or so ago when we were kind of, you know, hashing this out a bit, but we were uh, kind of looking at the concepts of uh, Patrick Tony uh, and, and what he brings to the table. So that, that'd be a fun episode next week. I'm not really worried about the offense all that much. I, I think Anthony Richardson has a chance to be special. I think if he stays healthy, um, you know, and has and has good coaching, I think he's going to have good coaching. I think Florida's offense could be pretty good. I think you know, obviously that that depends on the depth and the health of the offensive line. But for the most part, I think that if you've got a special quarterback, it doesn't really matter what the. Uh, um, or it, it matters, but the scheme is less important if you've got a guy who trans, who's transcendent back there. And Richardson has the opportunity to be that. And, you know, when you talk about getting getting excited about the defense, I mean, geez, we're not going to have double blitzes off the corners with no safety help. <laughs> like, I don't know what we'll do with ourselves. And the the big thing there is that I think people will enjoy the the discussion because Tony has some concepts in his defense or or. Um, that are that are sort of Dave Aranda based. He's also got some that you've seen with the Dolphins and Brian Flores, actually this past year, and so I think it's going to be interesting. <coughs> modern, to modern, yeah, <laughs> like something that's designed to take on a read option, an RPO, and uh, you know the type of offense that Billy Napier runs. And so um, I, I suspect that people are going to be excited and pleased with what they see from Tony's defense. Like, you know, I'm not saying they're going to be a top 10 defense, but I'm saying fundamentally sound that there are reasons behind the calls they're making. It's unpredictable, all those sorts of things. And I think that's reflected in the turnover margin, right? You start looking at that sort of stuff and say, why are they turning the ball over so much or, or getting turnovers so much? And that'll be reflective of that. So I'm looking forward to talking, to, talking, to, talking about that with you next week. It'll be fun. Absolutely. Sounds good. Sounds good. Will, um, anything else coming up? Read reaction this week. I know, uh, you said you and Nick have a new episode of stand up and holler coming out. 
that's yeah, uh, we pretty, guess... pretty creative there. <laughs> well, we were looking for a fourth concept, and we were texting back and forth about which SEC coach would you take in an ultimate fighting match after uh, the Jawan Howard thing with Michigan and Wisconsin the other night. So we decided, hey, let's make this a segment. So if you want to know why Eli Drinkwitz is the 14th-ranked SEC coach when it comes to comes to a fight, <laughs> if they were going to get into a fight. And the, the sad thing is, is that we both would have taken Ed Ogeron if he was still around at LSU. So now you get to see what kind of a downgrade it is for Brian Kelly. So that'll be out tomorrow. So that's kind of fun. Um, we, we enjoyed it a little bit too much using like uh, football concepts to describe why one, why one of the coaches would or wouldn't be uh, a good fighter when he got into the, into the octagon against some of his opponents. And then we'll have a couple of Gator football <laughs> con- uh, concepts as well as stand up and holler. And uh, I'm going to guess Brian Kelly was dancing too much. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. I, I, I don't believe I used the word predator, but maybe I should have. And uh, allegedly. Um, so <laughs> no, so it's good. So the other thing is I am working on something right now. I don't know if it'll be out this week, but um, but it's really interesting to me that that it feels like based on the stats I'm looking at that Dan Mullen's offense is sort of going out of style in in not only the pros, but also in college football. And so I'm interested, to, or one of the things I want to take a look at this offseason, it's more in depth. I had to go back all the way to 1989 for these stats and plot them out and all sorts of stuff. But it looks like there's been sort of a fundamental change over the last four or five years in the way offenses are doing things. And I think that points towards what Tony does schematically on the defense. You know, you talked about Grantham's defense not being modern. I think there's a need to adjust because there's been a definite adjustment on the offensive side of the ball. So that'll be something that's coming up either in the next next week or two. Uh, we'll see how we'll see uh, whether I can get it up this week or not. Sounds good. Yeah, Will's been letting me uh, uh, peek in on that a little bit. So yeah, that's definitely yeah, we definitely you know tie in with what we kind of see from Patrick Tony uh, in the defensive side of the ball as well. So all right, that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. You can find Will on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site readandreaction.com. You can find him on YouTube there as well. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.